Let's start. Thank you guys for uh, joining me this afternoon. To God be the glory. Um, let us please prepare our hearts to come before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the privilege of drawing near. Father, we ask of you because we need of you, Father God. Lord, I, am, I know what I am and who I am in the light of your glory, Father God. And I am utterly dependent upon you, Father. Let me not be crushed with the sense of hypocrisy, Father God, for I am well aware I cannot live up to what I'm about to teach, Father. You are faithful in evening the playing field, Father God. And though I am speaking your word, I know that you are speaking to me first. So all that I can ask of my brethren, I ask for me also, for me first. Father, I ask that you be with us this afternoon, Lord God, that you prepare our hearts and minds to hear from you, Father God. Let us not be deterred by fatigue, Father God, but hungry for your living word, Lord. Help us to be attentive and alert, Father God. And we ask that you be in our midst, for we acknowledge that only you make the difference, Father. And this we ask of you this afternoon. Be with me, O God, and speak for thy servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Calvin once said, Nothing is more dangerous than to be blinded by prosperity. Men are undoubtedly more in danger from prosperity than from adversity. For when matters go smoothly, they flatter themselves and are intoxicated by their success. Amen. The way I, I like, uh, the way I, I remix his words, if you will, uh, is, I'm sure you guys have heard, we are all Arminians by default. Supposing that we are autonomous, the God of our own universe. Now, imagine fanning that flame with the gasoline of, of prosperity. Imagine fanning that autonomous flame, right, with the, with the gasoline of prosperity. It would only multiply the impossibility of having any regard for God. There is so much written in the Bible about wealth and the administration of it and the administration of our possessions. We have warnings and exhortations both in the Old and New Testaments regarding our dealings with the things of this world. Ultimately, ultimately, what God is calling us to do is to use the resources he has given us in a way that would work for us and not against us. Right. To use God's blessings, God's resources in a way that would work for us and not, and not against us. So how? Very simple, very short and quick, very brief answer to this question of how can we use our resources for us and not against us is found in Matthew 6. Verses 19 and 20, very quick and simple. So what are we not to do? We are not to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 20, what are we to do? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Very simple. Very simple. So how, the question is, how do I lay treasures in heaven? 
So the Lord addressed this question um, when he was addressing the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. We're familiar with the passage. The rich young ruler approaches the Lord. He says, teacher, what do I have to, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord responds, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And uh, the young man said, I have done all these things. What else do you got for me? And verse 20 is the, is, the, is the answer that we're waiting for. Jesus said to him, if you would go, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. So in a word, how do we lay up treasures in heaven? How do we use our resources for us? The answer is charity, generosity, liberality by giving the overarching theme of this chapter in chapter 16 seems to be the administration of our possessions and the consequences thereof for example leading up to this chapter in chapter 15 we read of the prodigal son squandering his father's inheritance in quote reckless living and the devouring his properties with prostitutes clear example of the mismanagement of god's resources In the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 16, we read of the dishonest manager, quote-unquote, wasting, or you can say mismanaging, his master's possessions. So we have this overarching theme of the administration of God's resources and the consequences thereof. So, the launching pad, if you will, of our parable is found in Luke 16, verse 14, which reads, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So what did the Pharisees hear? They heard the previous parable about the dishonest manager. And what were they ridiculing? They were ridiculing the exhortation of our Lord when he says in verse 13 that no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And here's the punchline. You cannot serve God and money. So what Christ is ultimately saying here, you cannot obey the first commandment if you idolize money. You cannot love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if you also love money. So we have this reoccurring theme of wealth and the administration of wealth which seems to be the motivation behind our parable, where we see again, and when, when the Pharisees were ridiculing, we see again with this parable, the Lord about to rebuke and warn the Pharisees. And this is what brings us to our text. Our text is found in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a a, a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime received your that in your lifetime received up your good things and received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's three quick things that I want to point out that are unique in this parable. The first one is that Lazarus is the only character given a name in all of Jesus' parables in, throughout the, the, the New Testament. That's the first unique uh, point. Now, this in turn gives many commentators reason to believe that this parable was actually a narrative of a true story. What I believe is the, a, a bit of a, of a balance of both. I would call it a parabolic narrative. And I think the reason for that, of, of, of calling it a parabolic, because there's certain things that are, that are parabolic by nature. For example, um, we hear of, of this dialogue being had between the rich man and a- Abraham, right? There's nowhere else in Scripture which, which this takes place. And then the question should rise, there has been a chasm that no one can cross to and fro, right? So that, how can you, you carry on a, a dialogue then? So there's clearly parabolic things um, um, included in this narrative, but I do believe there's a narrative. So the parable, point number two, and this parable is, is unique. And I had to really, really sweat for this one to kind of understand, wrap my head around it. So this parable is unique by it reversing the custom of illustrating a heavenly meaning with an earthly story. And in turn demonstrating a spiritual reality within the narrative itself in the description of what takes place after death. That's a mouthful. So in other words, there is a spiritual aspect in the narrative itself that is illustrating a spiritual reality. So we understand the common parable to be, uh, 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 quote-unquote, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Right, an earthly story with heavenly meaning. So this is a narrative, an actual story with, with, with actual spiritual reality embedded in it. That's also unique in this parable. The third and last unique point is this parable is the only passage of scripture which describes the thoughts and emotional state of the unconverted after death. So before we dive in to, to, to the text, I, I'm, I'm kind of taking a, a slightly different approach in a sense. I mean, usually is the three points and header one. I'm going to leave that for the summary at the end. I kind of want to have an expository approach so we can work through whatever stands out in each verse. So let's look at uh, verses 19 to 21 briefly. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen 
and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here we are introduced to the two characters of our parable. Let us first look at the rich man. The text says that he was clothed in purple and fine linen and feasted sumptuously every day. So that is to just express or, or illustrate his lavish lifestyle, right? So purple, let's really zero in on the word purple and why purple and fine linen. So this phrase was pretty popular in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus, where the phrase purple and fine linen, fine twined linen was used over 20 times in the decoration of the of the tabernacle so in biblical times purple dye was very expensive to make and therefore it was very rare to have right so it, because it was very rare and very expensive the costly price tag only made it available to kings princes and high level officials purple was a color that represented royalty wealth and nobility it was symbolic for honor. Now, let us look at the second uh, character, who is Lazarus in verse 20. So, we read that he was laid, that is very amazing. He was laid at the, uh, he was laid at the rich man's gate, covered with sores, hungry for crumbs. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So from the very beginning of these, of these ver two verses, we already see extreme opposites taking place. I want to point just a, a few of them out. So there's these glaring polar opposites. So obviously is the rich man and the poor man. The rich man is dressed in purple and fine linen, and the poor man is dressed, if you will, in sores. The rich man feasted sumptuously, and the poor man is starving for crumbs. I believe, being that this is, is God-inspired, I believe there's, there's a reason for this, and I believe that reason is to illustrate the extremes of two contexts in order to amplify the consequential outcome of each situation. So in other words, it is because the rich man was so rich and Lazarus was so poor that makes the neglect of them so obvious and cruel, right? There's these glaring things like, whoa, that's wrong, that's, that's, that's wrong. I want to point out, because this is, this is, these are words that I think we can kind of just read over. I want to focus on, and at his gate was laid. And at his gate was laid. Note that the poor man was providentially laid at the gate of the rich man. In other words, the Lord was providing the rich man opportunity. Do you guys see that? That's, I didn't read that in the commentary. I was like, wow, the Lord. I was actually trying to confirm it in the commentary. But I was like, whoa, this is unbelievable. So being that, that scripture, is, all, like scripture is, is God breathed, we shouldn't, every single word, every single adjective, verb, and conjunction should be carefully read over. I mean, I believe the word if is one of the most powerful words in God's word. So the reason this is this opportunity the Lord providentially laid this poor man at his gate is so significant. 
is because this is the, the, the sin of the rich man. Spoil alert. So this is the spoil alert. The sin of the rich man is the neglect of the poor man. It's his negligence. That is the sin. So obviously I wouldn't say that's his only sin, but according to the details of this parable, this is the sin the rich man had and did not give. Let us be reminded of the dialogue between Jesus and a Pharisee in Matthew 22, which reads, And one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, asked the Lord, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And the Lord replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself which is clearly not the case of the rich man. So in light, of the, in light of, of the popular principle to whom much is given, much is required, I mean, that has a, a universal application, whether it be wisdom, give by grace what you have received by grace, whether it be wisdom, possession, resources, wealth, whatever it is. And I want to just say this in light of that principle. Do you know, do we know, that the more we know something, the more pronounced is our neglect of it. In other words, and we have already covered this, the more you know something, the more guilty you are for not doing it. We covered that in a previous uh, parable. So in light of this principle, should not, and I see the boxes of the Sumerian's purse, which is Praise the Lord is a beautiful example of what I'm about to say. So should not our abundance be our cue to give and to be generous? That should be our cue. Like I have, I, I don't, I mean, I'm guilty here. I got more than a few pair of sneakers and shoes, you know what I'm saying? Um, but, I'm, but by the grace of God, I can. <laughs> Brother Amari. <laughs> um, <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, should not our abundance be our cue to give? And I want to point a few things out. Are we aware of the Lord providentially, providentially providing us with opportunities to be a blessing with the abundance he has given us? Are we aware of these things? Do we wait for opportunity? Like, do we wait for someone to ask us for a favor? I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm saying that do we wait with the type of heart, like, I hope this dude don't ask us for now because I won't have to give him something. You know what I'm saying? Or, or are we intentional about being generous? Do you look for the opportunity? And I pray that this parable may help us become more aware for opportunities to give. And, and in light of this, I want to ask a question to get the, get the conversation going. Um, does generosity provide gospel testimony? If so, how and or why? So does, does or can our charitable efforts bear witness of God? If so, how and why? Anyone? You understand the question? You guys are looking at me crazy. Bob? Well, I think just like Samaritan's Purse, we give those boxes of, uh, you know, shoe boxes, but they're giving the gospel with it. So, yeah. I mean, Jesus fed 5,000 and preached the gospel. Amen. Um, you know, someone's, someone is in lack of need. It's an excellent opportunity to share the gospel with them. Um, I've, I've always used those opportunities in the past when, 
showing generosity to someone to, I feel like I have now the right to give them a gospel track or to share the, to witness to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to ask a question to you as well. Uh, my question is this. How do you as a believer discern who, who is, should be a recipient of generosity? How do you, how do you identify a genuine need? Mm-hmm. And how do you know that that person should receive it? Um, obviously, I think Lazarus, there's a very clear example. Lazarus was laid at the gate. He's yeah, yeah. dirt poor. But, you know, I think in our society today, it's a little bit harder. So I'm just curious your thoughts on that. That's a great question. I mean, I think in one word, inquiry, inquiring. I mean, obviously, I'm sure we all have come across the homeless man on the street. You know what I'm saying? Um, a way to be discerning, for example, is not just give them money, but say, let's go get something to eat. You know what I'm saying? Actually walking that person to getting something to eat, which by the grace of God, I've done. Um, so I would just say inquiry. And I mean, man, I, there's, I got a lot of testimony about that, actually. Um, that would take too much time. But I would say ask questions. I would say that's the main one. Um, be discerning of the situation. Obviously, they could be asking you drugged up, so it's clearly not a good idea. Um, that's very common, um, unfortunately. Um, what else? Um, and I mean, I don't know, like, sometimes I also think, like, funny, like, let's just say a friend of mine asked me for money, right? Obviously, I, I, I'm only willing to, willing to let someone borrow what I'm willing to lose. <laughs> um, but I also see that as, a, as, a, as an opportunity for the Lord to convict that person and bring them to repentance in his dishonesty, right? So, so not saying that that should introduce some kind of looseness in me just giving. Here's another example. This is crazy. Like, my brother-in-law, um, I was having a conversation with him. Hopefully, he wouldn't, he wouldn't hear this message. But um, <laughs> um, he believes to be a Christian. Unfortunately, he's a Catholic, but he believes to be a Christian because he reads a psalm every day, Right? And by the grace of God, we, we was, we was um, conversing one day, and I said, my brother, let me ask you a question, man. Like, how do, you, how do you know you're a Christian? So he started carrying on and saying, like, oh, because, you know what I'm saying, like, I came from the, from the gutter, and I, I'm, I'm a partner at a law firm now, um, and, and I give to churches, I give to homeless, I do this, and I give. And I said, brother, first thing, you know there's such things as synagogues of Satan, right? So I pointed out, that was the first thing I pointed out. Second, so I was like, how do you know you're actually giving to the church of God, the church of Christ? Secondly, I said, do you realize that in your testimony, Christ was not to be found? You will focus on your works, right? So just to circle back, yeah, we want to be discerning what we're giving, um, but also be mindful that that giving could be an opportunity for the Lord to do a work in that person. Not only in the thanksgiving to God, but in the conviction of his sin, because he was going to use it for, or misuse it. Is that, is that, without too long-winded, right? Absolutely. 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 I've seen it. I've seen it in foreign countries, and you don't see that in the U.S. So it's a, it's hard to discern how we do that here in America. I, and I'm just throwing it at you as a teacher. I'm not. I'm 
Right now, I and I think I think also trusting in the leading of the Spirit of God. Because again, you you can be you can be so over discerning that you can be neglectful. And the Lord walks out and you walk away and the Lord's like, oh, I got to get this dude some. You know what I'm saying? So it's very, in that sense, it could be very subjective. You know what I'm saying? I think also something important is that charity always begins in the house of God. Amen. And if you know a brother or sister in the church and they're struggling and they, they can't make their bills or something. Amen. You could do something about it and you don't. I think that's more shameful when, you know, what does it say? If you can't care for your members of your own household, you're worse than an infidel. Amen. Amen. And I mean, just to just to piggyback off that first John three. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in him? Amen. Thank you for that question, brother. Oh, brother T. How does like giving affect gospel witness? Yeah, so like, I know Bob, thank you for bringing that, bringing that up. So Bob is saying that, yeah, because I kind of wanted to, to, to tighten up the question even more. So yeah, giving can be a means through which we can share the gospel. But the question is, can giving itself bear witness of the gospel? Oh, I wanted to uh, share something I, sure. that, that I found helpful in um, when I, personally to me, when I read, uh, I was reading Everybody's a Theologian by R.C. Sproul, mm-hmm. and his distinguishing, um, he distinguished Common grace ministry and saving grace ministry. Mm. And he was talking about how liberals pushing the social gospel only did, um, you know, they, they, let's give to the poor, let's help um, do all these social work, mm-hmm. but neglected the gospel. They never shared the gospel. Forget the gospel. Mm-hmm. And evangel- he, he was describing how evangelicals in a reaction to that was only preaching the gospel and, and, and neglected yeah. doing good. Yep. And he was, you know, talking about how Jesus' ministry, he did, you know, good and showed compassion and did mercy ministry, but also preached the word. Amen. Amen. I know when the Lord um, really burdened my heart for the homeless and drugged up um, in Boston, um, um, I had one over there with Brother Stanley. Some of us know Stanley. And um, there's, there's this one street called Mass Avenue, and there's like a homeless shelter. That joint is infested, infested. And I would make it very clear. I'm like, I got this sandwich, but I'm trying to speak, like feed you spiritual food. Like, I'm not here to play games. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was very intentional. Um, but also, just to keep in mind, again, going back to that question, I want to hear your thoughts if, any, if anybody else has any other thoughts. Like, I think the idea, okay, I think the idea of giving and being generous is, is, is countercultural in a way, right? We, we, we could be hoarders by, by nature, too. You know what I'm saying? So that giving, as far as how it can be a gospel testimony, is that I treasure God, who's my giver, more than this. Right? Brother, brother Marvin. Um, first, Jesus said it's, it's better to give than receive. Amen. And um, also, uh, God didn't spare his only son, but he gave Amen. him for us. So in giving, we are being like God. We are copying God. Amen. And uh, so giving in and of itself is, is God-like. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Brother Marv. Like what well, you said that are you waiting for the opportunity or are you seeking? And, you know, here, even in our church, um, Sister Val, she has just come up to us and Marcia, too, um, and was just like, do you need pampers? Uh, wow. And just that question, it was like, we, and it came when we needed it the most. Wow. 
And so she wasn't waiting for me to, like, ask, you know. She Put was, it on the bulletin. She just thought, like, you know, I received some pampers and I thought about you. Wow. And, you know, that was an amazing testimony to, you know, the, the generosity and thinking of the household of God. As Amen. As Bob mentioned. Amen. Brother T. Oh. Dad, you psyched me out. Would you would you repeat would you repeat that question again? Sure. So the question is: um, Does or can generosity provide a gospel testimony? The the act of giving, not not that you can share the gospel through the means of giving with a tract, but just the act itself. Can okay. that be a gospel witness? Well, this old sinner said, by grace, I, I've learned that it depends what we think about who, has, who, who really owns the money that we have. Amen. And if we can really believe that we are stewards of his money, that it doesn't belong to us, and that's freedom when you come to that point, then when we do give, it will be using his money to further the gospel and only the spirit of God who knows the spirit in which we give then will make a, 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 a fruitfulness or a, to the person that we minister to. Amen. Amen. You understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's, that's freedom. When you understand all that you have belongs to him and then you use it as he directs you and when he directs you then it's going to be fruitful. He'll bless. Amen. Amen. Brother Ant. Yeah, brother. Um, so it seems like the question you're asking sounds a little bit like the statement that we've heard in the past. You know, um, you know, preach the gospel and whenever use words, use words. whenever possible. <laughs> that's that sounds. That like, is not what I'm saying. I'm not. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's what you're asking. <laughs> so, so yes, our acts of of mercy towards other people demonstrate the love of God, but. Unless they have a proper mindset, unless they can be told and given the, the proper context in which they're being shown this mercy, then even though it demonstrates that from our point of view, it may not demonstrate that from their point of view. The mm-hmm. same way that marriage that happens in a church that's, that's done by believers is meant to demonstrate the relationship between Christ and the church mm-hmm. happens in Vegas every day, a thousand times a day, yeah. and it's done for the benefit of, of buffets and for people to share their love or whatever. So, so context is very important, and mm-hmm. the way that, in which we always, have, we always make sure that we take the opportunity to share the gospel and make it verbal, make it biblical act of mercy mm-hmm. um, is what truly gives that person the context of receiving it in the right way. Hey Amen. I thank you for, 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 again, shining light on that one to, to provide that warning. I mean, we all know this, this, this text in Matthew five sixteen, and this is kind of like the anchor verse, if you will, of the question. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. What are those good works? It can be generosity, right? So, but why? That they may, give, they may glorify your Father who's in heaven. So that's kind of like the anchor point, you know what I'm saying? But that's the valid point you're making too as well. Sister Anne-Marie, we got the people going. Praise the Lord. Yeah, well, it's, uh, there's so many ways in which we can mm-hmm. um, You know, so many ways in which we can serve. And what I see is giving is an opportunity to also share the gospel, mm-hmm. whether it's financial giving time, 
um, you know, what there's so many ways in which we can give to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we take an interest in the welfare of others and their yeah. welfare, their well-being, mm-hmm. it's also that time where we can also be moved to share the gospel so that it's not like I'm going to give you a sandwich and feed you, but then to also recognize that that person is hurting. Yes, yes, yes. And that they need Christ. And, you know, I was having a conversation with Pastor Paul last week about some questions I had about some serving I was doing, and he reminded me that his word will not return void. Mm -hmm. So I think it has to be hand in hand. You know, we could give somebody the gospel, and if we're doing it in a legalistic manner, Mm -hmm. then... Maybe God will use it, maybe he won't. Yeah, yeah. But when we take that genuine interest in another person, will we really care? Yes. And I watch a lot of um, Ray Comfort on YouTube. When I first, um, when Anthony first made the presentation, mm-hmm. I was much I was much more immature and I kind of balked at it that it's very formulaic and yeah. you know I'm mm-hmm. not sharing the gospel in a formulaic manner. Now I share the gospel in a formulaic manner. <laughs> um, but I also you know I think of each time when he shares the gospel. He really says, I love you and I care about Mm -hmm. you. And that's why I want to share it. So it's a heart thing also. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amen. Thank you guys for engaging because this is the beauty of of discussion. See, you going to say something? Just kidding. Um, But this is is the, the beauty of the discussion because so many ground is covered. Brother Anthony brought up a great point. Tom, Amory, like, th- this is the beauty of this of, of of discussion and engagement. So thank you guys. Anybody else before we move on? Hey, praise the Lord! Now nah, get comfortable, guys. We we this is a vigil. I just, I just, uh, oh my! I'm so shy here talking. <laughs> oh my gosh! Here. Okay. But anyway. <laughs>
Amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah, amen, amen. No, thank you. Uh, no, thank you. That's essential what we're saying. Obviously, we're saying that it's not just one way, right? The sandwich could be a means for a conversation to build rapport and then share the gospel. It can be a gospel testimony without the gospel. It can be a t- like it's not just one way, right? So my bad if I mean praise the Lord that the that the question uh, uh, stirred you guys up, brother. You had a, you had a yeah, I just yeah. wanted to say that. Um, sure. In Ephesians, we are told that. Um, um, we are created in God's image, right? Mm-hmm. Created that, and that we should go and bring forth fruit and so forth. Um, no, that's not the one I really wanted to. But we are his workmanship. That's the one. Mm-hmm. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Jesus yep. Which God hath before yeah. ordained that we should walk in them. in them. And that which Anthony said there, I'm, I mean, wholeheartedly, um, agree with uh, it is God and as you said uh, Lazarus was being brought forth continually uh, at the rich man's gate it's an opportunity yeah. that he would uh, use that which he had to to reach yes. the, 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 the beggar yes. but we must and I agree with Andrew, we must use words it is good to give but then how do you preach the gospel? Now, you do not preach it by just giving a sandwich or something. You, you preach the gospel by using words. You Amen. open your mouth. You speak of Jesus. And um, <laughs> he's the gospel. Amen. And without that, people would not know. But, um, but this is a great opportunity given to us. God gave it to us. Yeah. Yes, yes. Brother, we'll do one more so we can... Keep moving. Um, just, just real quick on Matthew 25, uh, when he talks about the final judgment, uh, one thing that he said was um, that uh, the, when he was hungry, uh, they, the, the righteous gave him food. When he was thirsty, they uh, gave him drink. They came to see him when he was sick. Um, so we have examples of, of him judging those things mm-hmm. as evidences of salvation and, um, and then also for condemnation on, on, the, on the, the, the ones who are the unrighteous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Let us let us now uh, jump to verse twenty-two, and 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 really dig into the words Abraham's side and Hades. Define these terms. So, verse twenty-two to twenty-three. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. There's I didn't read this anywhere, but it's interesting. Like, there's this kind of like air of like service to the poor man. He was carried, he was ministered to by the angels, and then we just read that the that the rich man was buried and in Hades. I just found that interesting. But let's focus briefly on Abraham's side. Like, what is that? Where is that? Um, <laughs> there's a lot of. Uh, 
somewhat controversial on what that is. So the first thing I want to mention is that, the, that, that Abraham's side, um, or in the Greek, is, is bosom, but it translates into bosom. But this is the only place in Scripture where this phrase is used. So the Greek word for side is kolpas, and it's translated again, bosom, which means the front of the body between the arms, the lap, or the side of the person, hence Abraham's side. So, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot of speculation of what this term, what this phrase means. So you, you may have heard that Abraham's bosom may be a section in Hades um, or a holding place, like a holding cell for the, for the Old Testament saints who have died and who were then brought to heaven only after Christ had actually atoned for their sins. The reason why I think Really digging into this, the reason why I think that's a little too far-fetched is because if we are to interpret Scripture with Scripture, the Word is also consistently teaching that those who die in the faith go immediately into the presence of God. Obviously, we, we, we're reminded of the thief on the cross. Surely I say to you, today you will be where? With me in heaven, the Lord says, and we all also know Philippians 1.23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Also, another contradiction that I found interesting of this idea that that Abraham's side or bosom is like this holding holding place can be found in Luke nine, verse 30, where we see both Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, who, quote, appeared in glory and spoke of the Lord's departure through the cross. So if they were supposedly in this holding cell as Old Testament saints, then what were they doing hanging out with Jesus? <laughs> right? So Christ was yet to atone for their sins because they were testifying of what it was about to happen. So I don't know. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really go. I, I don't believe in my conviction that it's, it's, a, it's a holding cell. What I do believe is that Abraham's side is, another mouthful phrase, figurative phraseology. Um, and I just believe it literally means Abraham's side. So, it, it, but it has multiple means. I'm gonna break them down briefly. So, one is that he was at Abraham's side because one of the meanings is an, a, a place of honor, right? So that place of honor is because of who Abraham represented, and he's the, he was the father of the Jews. He was considered the patriarch, the father of the Jews. So sitting next to him um, with this idea of of like the guest of honor. That was the idea, right? The poor man going to, the, to, to be the guest of honor at Abraham's side. It, is all, it also has a symbolic meaning, which I think is very clear. And in a word, I believe Abraham's side is simply ultimately another term for heaven. Um, and I think Matthew 8, 11, um, when, when Christ is speaking of the inclusion of Gentile believers at the Messianic banquet, Christ says, I tell you. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where? In the kingdom of heaven. So I, just, I, I feel like that, that, uh, those are the two things, right? The, the, a place of honor at Abraham's side and ultimately another word for heaven. Now let us look at Hades. Let us look at Hades in verse 23. So Hades is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Sheol. So it was the term used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, to translate the word Sheol, which generally referred to the grave 
or the abode or place of the dead. In the New Testament, however, Hades can refer to a place of torment for the wicked, which we clearly see in the case of the rich man, the grave, or hell. So something that's not interesting is that the, in the New Testament, the use of Hades, the context in which it is used, determines its definition. There's three definitions, uh, place of torment, hell, and grave. Verse 23 is clear, and Hades being in torment. So that one's clear. Where Hades is referred to as hell is in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell. Hades shall not prevail against it. And now where Hades is used as grave is seen in Revelation 20, which reads, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death, and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So note the distinction that Hades, it says Hades was thrown in the lake of fire, which clearly distinguishes it to a different place, which leads to another word, just to make clear for our notes, is the word Gehenna. So Gehenna is the Greek translation of an Old Testament location called Valley of Hinnom. Valley of Hinnom is a place outside the Jerusalem city walls where garbage was constantly burning, hence its figurative reference as the quote-unquote lake of fire in Revelation 20. So in the New Testament, Gehenna is described in a number of ways as an unquenchable fire where the worm does not die, where both body and soul could be destroyed and where the eternal fire and the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Something in particular with Gehenna is that it always referred to, 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 to a place of not only torment, but eternal punishment for the wicked. There is yet another a term that I will breeze over that is also used or referred to as hell in the New Testament. And it is the word tartao or tartarus. This word is only used once in the New Testament, and it is, the, and it is only found in 2 Peter 2, 4. So this refers to the deepest abyss of hell. So it's almost like, like if, you want to say, if you want to say to somebody, go to hell, you say, go to Tartarus, like, that's like the exclamation mark. You're going to go to the deepest part of hell. Um, any questions about that? Any, any questions as far as Hades or any of the above? No? That's the Paul? Uh, about, uh, in verse 22, or, yeah, uh, 22. Yeah, I, I like the way you said about uh, speaking Abraham's bosom, uh, bosom is a place of honor, but the phrase that I think designates Abraham above all other things said about him is that he was the father of the faithful. Amen. And you'd, you'd have to believe that that has some thought here, too. Yes, 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 yes. Amen. Um, that's actually a part, and praise the Lord, this is when, when uh, discussions are awesome. That I was going to go um, to Romans 9 and talk about that, that not all descendants from Abraham is Abraham, but that he was also father of the faith. So thank you for pointing that out. That's, that's very important, yeah. Sister. Um, where you spoke on um, uh, Abraham, I mean, Lazarus going to Abraham's side, 
as you go down to verse 25, uh, you get right there the clear picture of, of that. Mm-hmm. He says, he, uh, Abraham says, he, he, Lazarus was comforted. That's what it means to be by his side. He was comforted. As it gives you in the Greek word where you come in between someone garment, you hug someone and, and comfort them. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell you, John laid his head on Jesus' bosom. Amen. Uh, it's a self comfort. Amen. Lazarus was comforted and the rich man was in torment. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, I agree with all the. Um, definitions that you gave uh, explaining those to us that's good yet at the same time somebody's known of abraham is the father of of the faithful a mere simple reading of the passage would show you that the rich man the the, the poor man ended better off <laughs> it was in a place. Just mere reading it. Just merely reading it. Absolutely. Simply reading it would show that, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're going to get there too. Uh, Pastor Bob. I know you're going to progress, but I just think it's important that one of the things we don't make the mistake of doing is, is interpreting this passage to think that people who are impoverished are intrigu- intrinsically virtuous. Yes. That if you're poor, that, that's a pass to go directly to heaven. Yep. And if you're rich, that means you're going to hell. Yes. There's a lot of poor people that are going to hell, and there's a lot of rich people who are going to heaven. Amen. It, it, so I, I just want to, I know, I'm sure you'll just yep. break that down further, but cause a lot of people make that mistake. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something more spiritual if you're poor, and that if, you know, if people who are poor are just going straight directly to heaven. Yeah, amen. I do have that point down, down further. And let me just say, like, almost off the record, like, I'm, I'm so grateful for this engagement. Um, I know that I'm under a time, a time constraint, but this is what I prefer. I hope you guys do the same. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're actually engaging. I don't want to be like, no, 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 hold that. Hold that thought. No one's being forced to you know what I'm saying? Like, obviously, whoever could leave. And I know I, I want to be, I want to go through the study, but like, like, I mean, aside from working hard and, and saturating in prayer, like I, this, this engagement, I hope you guys are reveling in this, enjoying this, versus like, yo, man, come on, dude. You know what I'm saying? Like, God willing, that's not the case. But So just thank you guys. This is, this is awesome. Because, I mean, even you mentioning that, Pastor Bob, like, like, I mean, I can skip over that, which I probably would not get into. You know what I'm saying? But I don't, man, I work hard on this, man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> gotcha, <No>. gotcha. <laughs> I'm playing, I'm playing, okay. <laughs> sister, uh, sister Emery and then T. Okay. What really struck me in this is the reversal. Mm. That on earth, the rich man appeared to be so fortunate. Yes. And have so much. The purple, which is, I believe, comes from the mollusks. In mm. Israel, I, you know, where they actually pull that out of the ocean, and that's where the dye comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, fine linens. So, you know, this man on earth clearly was royalty. Yes. And yet when you look at Lazarus, um, you see how, you know, unfortunate 
he was. Mm -hmm. But that's not the judge of this life. Amen. And you see the reversal. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking to find because I think of uh, Lazarus in the Beatitudes mm-hmm. and how the um, and how this rich man he actually wound up he lost it all he lost all, you know all his riches mm-hmm. whereas Lazarus his true <laughs> reward was in heaven at Abraham's side. Amen. And, and before T, before Tom, because of, of the comments um, of, of both uh, you, Emery, thank you, and, and, and Pastor, Pastor Bob, I want to just say, because we're talking about the, the, the poor man didn't earn heaven, all of that, and now you're talking about like these, again, these polar opposites, right? These glaring extreme opposites. I want to just share that I had down the line. I'll just share it now because you got inspired it for me to say it sooner and it's this quote by A.W. Tozer he says and what you just shared like this opposite like the poor man becomes rich is comforted he was in, he was in anguish he was in, so A.W. Tozer says this for a Christian this world is the only hell they will know for the unbeliever this world is the only heaven they will know which is pretty appropriate pretty appropriate but the time I liked all the Greek words you gave us, and uh, I think that's helpful in our day where uh, a popular teaching that's uh, you're taking resurgence is annihilationism, where mm. people are denying the eternality in hell. And like you mentioned, the Valley of Hinnom, where it was a physical location that uh, dead bodies were burned, mm-hmm. and Jesus takes that picture and he describes a place that's not like the Valley of Hinnom, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. And he says, some will go into eternal life and then some to eternal punishment. Amen. Amen. And we're going to get there, too, when, when we come to, to just exploring chasm, saying that it has been fixed, that no one can pass to a fro, that, which, which that alludes to the, etern- the finality of your destination, if you will. So amen to that. Anybody else? So let us go uh, to, starting in verse 23, now let us look at the dialogue between the rich man and Abraham. We're doing good. We're doing good. We're over time, but bear with me. Um, so I won't, I won't read the text, but I'll just say what we're going to focus on, right? So we, we hear the rich man say, Father Abraham, right, the father of the faith, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Let's just look at that, right? So between from verse 24 to 26, there are three things that these verses teach us, right? So the, I'm going to go with headers this time, this time. And that is the futile faith of the rich man. Number two, the torture of remembering. When Abraham says, child, remember that in your lifetime. And number three, which we were just talking, Tom, the eternality of hell. Right. As far as speaking about the chasm being fixed. So let let us briefly look at feudal faith of the rich man. So the rich man clearly esteemed his Jewish lineage more than he did the righteousness of God. In other words, he depended upon man more than he did upon God. 
So we are aware that the Jews had this particular confidence in their ethnicity as a natural descendant of Abraham, who was considered, again, the father of the Jews. The rich man clearly didn't get the memo of the Lord's warning in Matthew 3, which reads, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear witness in keeping with repentance. And here's what not to do. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So what was the Lord doing here? The Lord was clearly rebuking the Pharisees, as he is again doing with this parable, by destroying their assurance that their race can save them. I want you to really consider this. Can you imagine realizing in hell that your security, thinking as a descendant of Abraham, you're secured for heaven, was absolutely worthless? Like that is almost as bad Almost as bad as Matthew 7. Depart from me, I never knew you. Like, you imagine, I remember MacArthur said, like, that's going to be like the, like the saddest walk back to hell. Like, you imagine going to heaven, like, hey, Lord, what up, baby? He's like, I never knew you. Like, that, I, I've literally physically trembled at those words, man. I mean, Lord, Lord, speaking of the intimacy, depart, I never knew you. This almost as bad. And I want to share this because, again, he had this, the rich man had this, this confidence in his, in his natural ethnicity, if you will, and he learned in hell the truth. And listen to what Rao said. I believe Rao was quoting another divine, but Rao says, hell is truth learned too late. <sighs> Talking about a gut check. Health is truth learned too late. And this is something that I've actually used um, when I've come across like Catholics or just false religion. Like, like, are you so thoroughly convinced that you wouldn't to go to hell to find out the truth? You know what I'm saying? Like, I've used that and try to spin it for evangelical efforts. So let us look now how Abraham responds, which brings us to a second point. The torture of remembering. Abraham says, child, remember. This goes to show that those in hell will be conscious of their sin and of their missed opportunity. This is what I mean, like that the rich man will remember all of the merciful, will be tormented by remembering all of the merciful providential opportunities the Lord provided him in order to escape the very hell he is now suffering in. Can you imagine like, like being in hell and, 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 and remembering every track that was handed to you, every gospel that was preached, every single time your mom says, don't do that, or I'm praying for you and you would just reject it, that's going to be used against you via your conscience in hell, yo. That's going to like intensify the torment aside from the fire burning. That's unbelievable. May that compel us. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we can use that in our evangelism, evangelistic efforts. And we already covered um, what that, that in Abraham reminding him that in your lifetime, the A.W. Tozer quote. Let's, let's look at the third point now. The unescapable eternality of hell. A great chasm has been fixed. In other words, there's no getting out. So at this point in the parable, there's three things that we learn about, heaven, uh, about hell. Excuse me. 
The chasm has been fixed. You ain't getting out of hell. So there's three things we learn about hell at this juncture, at this point in the parable. And that is, hell is real, hell is hot, and hell is forever. This, this idea of the finality of hell also crucifies the idea of purgatory. Right? Because you ain't getting out, homie. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, so obviously we know that, that uh, purgatory is a place where you, is a, is a false Roman Catholic uh, doctrine um, that believes that, a, that it's a place where you go to suffer and quote-unquote pay for your sins until payment is exacted or paid and then you go to heaven. So men clearly think they can play the role of Christ. However, it is true. So this part of the idea of purgatory is true. In hell, you do pay for your sins. But you pay for them by eternally suffering for them. Brothers and sisters, we are in our final verses. Let us rejoice. Jubilee. Verses 27 to 31. Won't read it for the sake of time, but I'll point out the words that we're going to focus on. I beg you, Father, the rich man addressing Abraham. As, as we all have said, Anne-Marie was alluding to this as well. Again, the, the, the reversal now. The rich man becomes the beggar. So this is, this is clearly uh, 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 an affirmation of the trustworthy saying, those who exalt themselves will be humbled will be humbled. So we also see that, that the rich man, this is the first time he thinks of someone else other than himself in, in considering his five brothers. But again, hell is truth learned too late. Hell is truth learned too late. Let's look at verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And again in verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We were talking about signs and miracles today too, but signs and miracles was, uh, uh, or wonders, signs and wonders was a continual thing the Jews would ask for. Uh, we won't read them. I won't read this one. It's a longer text. Um, but if you want to note it down, some examples of the Pharisees asking for a sign from heaven is in Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Another example is also found in Matthew 16, which I really want to just read over because it's shorter. So, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to, to show them a sign from heaven. To test them. So they didn't even want to know. They wanted to show. The Lord answered them, when it is, when it is even, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red, etc. Co- come down a few, a few lines. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, the rebuke, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So what the Lord was clearly, they were asking, the Pharisees were asking for a sign from heaven, and the Lord gave them a sign from scripture. I won't go deep into this, but it's, it's interesting the fact that 
Lazarus is in this parable, talking about signs and wonders, talking about the raising of Lazarus in John 11, right? It's unbelievable. Again, I won't get into it, but in John 11, 45 to 53, we see that the Pharisees actually acknowledge in verse 47, they acknowledge the miracle performed by Jesus in verse 47. And yet in verse 53, we read that they made plans to kill him. So clearly, signs is not enough. Why? What's the punchline? The problem is not a lack of sign or physical evidence, but of spiritual deadness. It is not a sign that is needed, but a change of heart. And how does this change of heart come about? The word of the living God. The word of the living God. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 1.23 You have been born again through the living and abiding word of God. And you guys can finish this for me. Faith comes by hearing and what? Amen. And this is what Abraham was saying here. The doctrine of salvation is all over your Hebrew Bible, rich man. Starting from Genesis 3. And this is, what, this is what Abraham was referring to when he uses that phrase, Moses and the prophets. He was referring to the Old Testament. And the specific singular emphasis in Abraham's reply, saying, like, don't look to me, look to the word of God, is... Only scripture can overcome unbelief. That's the takeaway. That's the punchline. Brothers, if, bear with me, and I, pray, I really believe this may be a blessing. Pastor Paul, if I may use you as an example. Um, maybe two years ago, um, Pastor Paul had preached. For whatever reason, um, he came and surprised me by sitting next to me. And he says, Eric, I fell alone up there. And all your humility, which I so appreciate. He said, Eric, I felt alone up there. Um, again, f- this, th- this feeling, this sense of inadequacy in, 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 the, in the sharing and the preaching of God's word. What God knows, I feel every single time. I don't think I'll ever, sh- nor should I ever get comfortable up here. God forbid. And when he shared that with me, Pastor Paul, I had, um, I had watched this YouTube testimony. We're almost done, I promise. Um, uh, I watched this YouTube testimony, right? I, I watched this YouTube testimony that, that quickly the conversation with Pastor Paul had inspired. And I don't remember Pastor Paul. I burned it on DVD for you to watch. Um, Pastor Paul was like, what? <laughs> I promise I'm not lying. Um, but this, this testimony was, um, I want to, so literally it was like a, almost a 10-minute um, um, testimony. And I, and I abbreviated it because I, I really think, even for you evangelists, I really, I mean, we're all evangelists, right? But I think it could be very, very encouraging. So please bear with me for these few minutes. So uh, this testimony was shared by a pastor in San Antonio of Grace Community uh, Church. His name is Jeff Peterson. He was quoting from a book. The book, is, the book is called The Messianic Hope. Is the Old Testament really messianic? And how appropriate is that is? Because Abraham was saying, look to, the, look to the Old Testament. So please follow along. Please listen. Please. So uh, this, this book was written by Michael Rydelnik. 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 So Michael Rydelnik was born Jewish in New York City and raised a Jew. But when converted to Christianity, but was, but was then converted to Christianity when he was in high school. In this book, 
Michael writes about the time when he was in high school and engaged the local synagogue leader who was a well-learned Jew. At a meeting of the local Hebrew club, there was a Q&A session with about 100 people in attendance, and 100 people in the audience, and this well-learned Jew named David, we've got to remember names, David, from the synagogue was the chosen speaker who was asked to address everyone in attendance. During the Q&A, Michael stands up and identifies himself as a Jewish follower of Yeshua. With much boldness, he went on to bring up the common issue amongst Jews, and that is whether or not Yeshua fulfilled the messianic prophecies of the Hebrew Bible. This is when it all came crashing down. David, the well-learned Jewish speaker, challenged Michael, the author who's, who's sharing this testimony, challenged Michael to come up with just one messianic prediction that Yeshua had indeed fulfilled. Michael pulls out the word of God and started at Genesis 3.15. David interrupts and says that, the, that listen to this, David interrupts and says that th that message has nothing to do with the Messiah, but was just merely a story of how snakes and humans came to attack each other. This dude's wow. Michael continued to bring up verse after verse, prophecy after prophecy, and David would twist each and every one of them, like the devil, one of them to show that, the, that none of them had anything to do with the Messiah. Michael goes on to say that he has never encountered a, a speaker as capable as David. And even worse, knowing he was right, knowing that Michael was right, according to the word of God, Michael couldn't speak as skillfully and convincingly as David was able. All he could do, however, was cite and quote the word of God. Michael goes on to say that he started to sweat and become tongue-tied in the awareness of his unskillfulness, but that he wouldn't give up. Every time the learned Jew David would shoot him down, Michael came up with another passage and another passage only to have David shoot him down again. The meeting finally ended. Reflecting on his, on his interaction, Michael became very angry and disappointed, not at David, but at himself. He spoke of how he recognized the opportunity to represent his beloved Messiah in a public way. But because of his lack of preparation and, and poor communication skills, he felt as if he had failed him. Have you ever felt like that? He felt miserable. But listen, fast forward 32 years. Michael is now a professor. And while setting up for an all-day seminar at a church in Southern California about a book he wrote on the Arab and Israeli conflict, a Messianic Jew of about 60 years old with a thick Brooklyn accent, sort of like Emory, a thick Brooklyn accent approached him and started conversation with him, started conversation with him. Michael says that this Jewish man seemed familiar and that, the, and that he assumed they had met the previous year when he had spoken at, his, at, at this same congregation. In curiosity, Michael asked about his Brooklyn accent, and the Jewish man said that it's because he grew up in Brooklyn until he had moved to Southern California 10 years prior. 
After much conversation, Michael comes to realize that the reason this Jewish man looked so familiar was because he was actually his high school music teacher, Mr. Vince Salzman. He couldn't believe that his Jewish teacher from high school had become a follower of Yeshua. His class was about to start, Michael's, so the conversation came to a pause. But Michael grew eager to conclude his first session in order to hear and inquire how Mr. Salzman came to faith. An hour later, he listened to Vince's story. Listen to this. About 30 years earlier, this is Vince's story. About 30 years earlier, one of, one of Vince's former Jewish colleagues, the history teacher at the same high school, became a follower of Yeshua and has spoken to Vince about his faith. This intrigued Vince to strongly consider if Yeshua was indeed the Messiah. Vince then had said that during that time, he had heard that someone was coming to speak at the Hebrew club about Jews and Jesus. So Vince attended. The speaker was David, the well-learned Jew that seemingly debunked all of Michael's biblical convictions that Yeshua was the Messiah. Vince continued his story by saying, what I don't remember what the, what the speaker said, but I do remember that there was some kid there with a Bible. And he stood up and he, and he said that he was Jewish and that he believed in Jesus and became and he believed in Jesus and became and began to quote messianic prophecies the funny thing was that this speaker had an answer for every passage this kid cited no matter what verse the kid referenced the smart guy knocked it down showing why it absolutely couldn't be speaking of this about excuse me about the messiah he had an answer for everything, but this kid wouldn't stop. Every time a verse got shot down, he'd bring up another one. Finally, when the whole thing was over, I got to thinking that those verses sounded pretty messianic to me. So I decided, Vince, listening to this young man, Michael, so I decided to get a Bible and read these verses for myself. And as I read the Old Testament, I began to see that it really was all about Yeshua. It took a couple of years of reading the Bible and studying the prophecies, but I became a believer in Yeshua. Having told Michael his story, Vince then asked him. Do you know who that kid was? To which Michael replied, Yes, I do. It was me. Michael was absolutely awed by God's grace. 32 years after his perceived horrible failure, from his sense of inadequacy, he learned that God used it to help someone along the way to faith in Yeshua. Michael goes on to say that it clearly wasn't his unrealistic self-confidence or persuasive arguments or skillful handling of the scriptures that helped Vince come to faith, but rather it was the power of the word of God alone. 
Spurgeon is known to have said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. So this is it. What are the three main takeaways of our parable of our study today that we went super over and I appreciate your patience. Takeaway number one, the mismanagement of the Lord's blessing can become your curse. The rich man's wealth wasn't the sin. The problem was his selfish indulgence of it and thus his cruel neglect of his neighbor in need. Main takeaway number two, hell is again real, hot, real, comma, hot, comma, and forever. May this kindle a holy fire in us all towards those who are lost and are heading to that very place. And how should we approach such lost souls? That leads us to takeaway number three. By sharing the word of God, but doing so and not trusting in our intellect or man-made formulaic methods, but in the power of the word of God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for your written, inspired word, Father God, which all is God-breathed, and you have written for us to instruct us and teach us of all righteousness, Lord. I am aware of my inadequacy, Father. I am well aware, Father, and in light of my inadequacy oh god i have no option left but to trust in your power and the authority that lies only in your word father so we ask father god that by your spirit you may apply the truths heard this afternoon to our heart oh god that may truly do a work in our hearts and change us lord how much access to word we have, how much reformed conversations go on, but no power, Lord. Yes, we are not to expect from man what only God can do, but, oh God, let that influence our prayer lives in seeking you for that power, oh God, trusting you for that power, asking you for that power, Lord God, through us, Change us, O oh God. Help us. Sanctify us by the word of your word. Father, we thank you, Lord God, for the patience you have instilled in all of us and for the engagement that was had this afternoon, Father. We have relished in your word, Father, and we thank you and praise you for being in our midst, O oh God. In Christ's name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for real. And praise God. Praise God.